Father, we are grateful to you uh, to gather on this day of rest, of reorientation, of refreshment. On a day where, in, in, in many ways, our, our culture and society comes to a, a standstill, where we're still haunted by these stories that we have been reading, even as, as a culture that, that, by and large, doesn't believe it. We're still haunted by the hope and the good news that you have entered our world, that the Creator unzipped the creation to step through in order to redeem it. Lord, would you reorient us according to that truth, that it is the the truest reality of the universe, of your love for sinners. Lord, would the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you as we reflect on, on your word, and of these grand truths of of redemption that you have given to us. Lord, would you do that work among us by your spirit? In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So for the past month, we have been in a a series of, of messages that we call the mothers of Jesus. And the idea here is that the Gospel of Matthew, which is the very first book of the New Testament, it, it begins in, uh, in a kind of an anticlimactic way with just a big long list of names, a genealogy, a lineage, a, a family tree of who Jesus is, a, a, a list of so-and-sos begatting so-and-sos, that kind of list of names. And one of the most interesting things about that list of names is that it connects Jesus with Abraham, the father of the faith. It connects Jesus to King David, who's Israel's greatest king. It's giving us this idea that Jesus didn't just drop out of the sky, but he is the long-awaited and expected one that's bona fide, that's legitimate. He is Israel's long-awaited king. But it also does something really interesting. It connects Jesus, Israel's long-awaited king, with four women. Four mothers of Israel, and they're very unexpected mothers in Israel. And so for the last month, we've looked at the stories of Tamar, of Rahab, of Ruth, and Bathsheba. Now, some of you may not know who who all of those women are, but they all have really interesting stories from the Old Testament. All of those women are outsiders. They're all in some way connected to the Gentile world. They all have some kind of cloud of scandal that hovers near them. And all of them communicate what kind of king Jesus is. He's a king for outsiders. He's a king for those who are beset with guilt and shame. He's a king for everyone. This genealogy also includes a fifth woman. Not a foremother of Jesus, but his own mother, of course, which makes sense, Mary. She too has a cloud of scandal around her, even though it's of no making of her own. She's pregnant and unmarried. She's something of an outsider. She is from an obscure backwoods town, Nazareth. It's up in the north country in Israel, never once mentioned in the Old Testament. And so the Savior and King of the world is promised and given not to the world's most important centers of power and commerce and culture and society. It's given to this young woman who all of us would agree if we saw her, we would not call her a young woman. We'd simply say she's a girl. Just a young lady. Christmas is about the only time in a Protestant church where we talk about Mary. And I would argue that makes sense. It's no slight toward her. Because the story of redemption is about her son. It's about Jesus. And most of what we know about Mary, even though she pops up occasionally in the Gospels, is this is really where we get to know her in these early uh, chapters, in these early stories of Jesus' life. Especially in Matthew and in Luke. 
And so I'm sure many of us come into this room and we appreciate Mary. We should appreciate Mary. It's not not a big deal that she is the mother of our Lord. That as our theologians have said, rightfully, she is in, in, in some very true way the mother of God, we can say. But we don't honestly think very much about her. Now, if you come from a Catholic background, you've had a different experience altogether. You would have been taught something far different. Mary is something of a co-redeemer, a co-mediator with her son. She is Mary, the queen of heaven. She is the mother who tenderly hears with compassion the prayers of her people. Mary herself is sinless. And so if you've ever heard of the Immaculate Conception, that doctrine refers to her virginal conception and birth, not Jesus's. But I would contend quite forcefully that none of those ideas are found in Scripture. And so here's this tension, right? Do we give Mary enough credit or do we give her far, far too much credit? Well, she is certainly not a co-redeemer or sinless, but she's also not, insig- or she's also, um, not insignificant in any way. She, she truly is the Blessed Virgin. She's the mother of our Lord. And here's where I want to focus this morning just briefly with you is that really most of all, how I want to think about Mary is that she is the model disciple. She is the model follower of Jesus for us. Mary was not sinless, but instead she knew her need of the redeeming work of God through her own son that she would bear. Right from the beginning, she is one who looks outside of herself to the Lord and his work on her behalf. And so we're going to look at three vignettes from these early scenes of Jesus' life. Three scenes of how we get to know Mary as the, as the model disciple who helps us not to see her greatness but the greatness of God. Not her self-sufficiency but her needs being met in the one that she carried in her womb. So two of these scenes have already been the lessons that we've looked at. So we'll go back and interact with those and then we'll wrap up with a third scene where we get to know Mary as our model disciple. All right, so let's look at scene one. This is the longest scene. We get to know most about her and about what God is doing from this first vignette, this first scene. Luke chapter one, this is the lesson that we saw. Gabriel, the angel, he comes to Mary in Nazareth and he greets her. Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying. All right, anytime an angel comes to the people of God, you have two things happening. People are afraid. Here, Mary is agitated. She's troubled in being addressed by the angel. And so what what does the angel always have to say next? Don't be afraid. Fear not. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And eventually Mary responds, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Hardest part about Christmas messages is maybe that we, we, most of us, most of us have heard it all before. We're so familiar with this scene. We're, we're so familiar with this story, right? Charlie Brown Christmas gives us this story every single year. And so for some of us, these stories of the nativity are comforting. I think that's a good response. Maybe for some of us, we can be a little cynical as we see maybe the commercialization or we see so easily how we we interweave the the nativity with with decking the halls with boughs of holly, whatever that means. 
And so we become grumpy when we hear this story. But we can't get grumpy at this story. No, at at its best, we, we have to put ourselves beside Mary because what this scene is doing is it's helping us to consider not just what Jesus will do, which is what we talk about most of the time, is what Jesus does, but this is telling us who he is, all, all here in this first scene. An angel from heaven announcing God's plan of redemption, and there's no press conference. There's no heavenly procession. There is not a king, a priest, or a prophet in sight. There is a teenage girl, a nobody. We don't really know her family. And she's from a nowhere town. And the angel says to her, Blessed are you, O favored one. And hear this. Mary is favored not because she is worthy, as if she could ever make herself worthy. Uh, She is worthy because she is favored. She is worthy because God is with her. That's what makes her worthy. That's where we start to see Mary as our model disciple. The angel says, you will have a son and you will name him Jesus. Yeshua, the Lord saves. That should give us an insight of what God is doing. He will do the saving. I love the next line. He's going to be great. He will be great. He will be a son in the line of David, a royal lineage over the house of Israel, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary says what Paul McCartney put to music centuries later, Let it be. Let it be. Let it be to me. Mary is addressed with the word of the Lord from the angel, and she says, let it be. I believe. If over-familiarity is the first threat, I think the second threat with these familiar stories is, is we trivialize them. About 15 years ago, Cassie, my wife, and I, we spent Christmas in the UK, and on Christmas morning, we, we went to the local parish, and, and the local vicar um, celebrated Christmas, and I'll never forget the application, which was something along the lines of, you too can be like Mary. Eh. <laughs> I mean, maybe, <laughs> but I know my life hasn't looked like Mary's. I haven't had the same experiences as her, and so let me just take one step back. And say, maybe instead of talking about being like Mary, maybe we can believe in Mary's God and the greatness of God's work. Because at the end of the day, that's what she models. She believes the story. There's one takeaway, right? There's no moral to the nativity story. That's where I would disagree with be like Mary. There is no moral to this story. There's a message. And the message is God saves through the son that will be born. God has come to save and Mary believes it. Mary believes it. So friends, behold the greatness of Jesus in a world of fading glories. Behold the kingdom that he brings that will endure forever and all of these kingdoms that will pass away. The incarnation of Jesus, I know you've heard me say this before if you've been here for any time at all because I say it every single Christmas, that baby born, the incarnation of Jesus, it is first and foremost a judgment. It is a judgment on the ability of human wisdom and human understanding and power and righteousness to save. You can't do it. God had to do it. God must save, and in Jesus he has. I mean, isn't that the message we need this time of year? Isn't that a reason to gather on Christmas morning is to be confronted with the refreshment and the reality that God has worked for us? 
How many of us put smiles on our faces when in reality we are in this season dealing with increased depression, increased anxiety, increased worry. If you have grief and loneliness in your life, it is on fire right now during the holiday season. Family dysfunction rises right to the surface at this time of year. Can you imagine our brothers and sisters in Ukraine celebrating Christmas this season? And the announcement of the angel is that God sees all of the dysfunction and all of the sin and all of the brokenness and all of the warfare and bloodshed and he intrudes into this world in order to save it. The message of Christmas is that the light has come to overcome the darkness. And Mary, I know she's young, but make no mistake about Mary, she is familiar with the brokenness of this world. In whatever way she has experienced it, In whatever way, I insist, Mary has contributed to the brokenness of the world through her own sin. So she has experienced this sin-stained, cursed world, and she listens to the angels say, with God, all things are possible. And even in that dark world, Mary says, I believe it. I believe you're at work. Let it be. That's scene one. Mary believes. Scene two. All right, so we continue to observe our model disciple. Mary and Joseph head down from the north in Nazareth, about to the middle of the country, to Bethlehem. Bethlehem is not a very significant town in terms of what it provides. Historically, though, it's, it's very prominent because that is the city of David. It's where David comes from, Israel's greatest king. We read at the time there's this mandatory government census, and so what happens is that everybody from Bethlehem, or whatever city you're from, you have to go back to the city where your family is. So what I want you to to understand here is that Joseph is going back to his hometown, which means that all of Joseph's relatives are going back to their hometown, and everyone from Bethlehem is present because of this census. Now, why is that significant? Because all of the guest rooms are booked, because everybody's in town. And so instead of picturing a barn, don't picture a barn, picture a big living room except the animals are brought in from the night cold into that living room. And that's where Mary gives birth. She gives birth. The scene cuts to the shepherds out in the field. Again, expectations are being upended. There are still no priests. There are still no kings. There are still no prophets. Now we just have blue-collar shepherds. An angel appears to them. We have our normal responses. They're terrified. Angels say, fear not. Shepherds hear of this announcement, and they make their way to Bethlehem, and they find this baby that the angel talked about. They find Mary, Joseph, and the baby lying in a manger. And the shepherds relay their experience of the angels and everyone present. And so Joseph and everyone, right, by all of Joseph's extended family, friends, they're all here to see this baby. And the angels tell the story, and, and Luke tells us that they hear this and they wonder at what the shepherds told them. A story of angels and shepherds wasn't much easier to believe back then, just as it isn't easy to believe now. They wonder at this story the shepherds tell, and then Luke zeroes in, zooms in on Mary, Luke 2.19. While everyone else is wondering at the shepherd's story, Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. At the first scene, she believes. In the second scene, she treasures and she ponders. Mary is beside her baby amidst the chaos, and everything has been chaotic. Moms, did you have a birth plan? 
You know what a birth plan is, right? It's, it's where you're supposed to identify everything that you, you need to do, all the contact information, everything leading up to the birth of the child. Now, I don't think Mary had a birth plan. Those were not in vogue in the first century. But let's just say Mary did have a birth plan. Weeks ago, she would have torn that thing up and, and said, forget about it. This has just been chaotic for them. I mean, the forced travel, all of the, the unknown lodgings, um, they had pretty low standards of, of, of sanitation based on what, 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 you, what we're used to, right? But, but she's giving birth surrounded by farm animals. There's no birth plan. It's all chaotic. And yet, and here's what I want to focus on. Amidst the chaos and commotion, amidst the response to the shepherds from everyone present, Mary treasures Jesus. She treasures the God who has made promises to her. She ponders in her heart the one who she cradles. And so was I too hard on that Anglican vicar? Maybe we should be like Mary. Maybe we should be like Mary. Treasure Jesus and ponder him in your heart, even amidst the chaos of life. I think that that is the best time of the year. That, That is the message we have to continually remind ourselves of, is that we are at this time to, to pause and reflect upon the one who entered our life so that we might enter his. To meditate on the one who was rich, yet for our sake became poor. To consider the unfathomable links that God goes to be Emmanuel, God with us. How much time and attention do we give to those things in this world that neither last nor satisfy? And in this picture of Mary amidst commotion, we're reminded to set our minds on the glory of Christ. The reformer Martin Luther has so many sermons that are are published around Christmas time. So many Christmas sermons. And here's, here's a good one. Let me just share some lines about where to find joy and peace. Luther wrote this. He said, if you would have joy, bend yourself down to this place. There you will find the boy given for you. Who is your creator lying in a manger. And I will stay with that boy as he sucks and is washed, and eventually dies. There is no joy but in this child. Take him away, you face the majesty which terrifies. I know of no God but this one in the manger. That's a reality to ponder for a lifetime. I know of no God but the one who slept and nursed and teethed and cried and grew and who was great and who suffered and died. I know of no God but this one lying in a manger. So we were invited to stand next to Mary, to live a life of treasuring the salvation that is ours in Christ, a life of pondering the depths of God's love on display. So Mary models what it is to believe, to treasure, to ponder. Let's close with one more picture of Mary as our model disciple. Mary trusts in the work of her son. And when we talk about trusting, we're automatically talking about what it means to, to die to ourselves to let go of the things we trust in naturally in order to put our trust in God. So this is the scene we didn't look at. At the end of Luke 2, Joseph and Mary uh, take Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem. And they're going to present Jesus to the Lord. They're going to make thank offerings. They're going to thank God for all of the provisions he's made for them because they hear they have this beautiful, healthy boy. And they go to the temple, and inside the temple, there's this old man we meet named Simeon. And we're told that he is righteous and devout, and and he is this old guy who is sitting around waiting for the consolation of Israel, waiting for Israel's hope. He's a man filled with the Holy Spirit, and we're told that he was promised by God that he would not see death before seeing the Lord's deliverer. And he takes little Jesus up in his arms, 
And he proclaims as he looks at that baby that he has seen God's salvation. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. He sings that beautiful song and then Simeon blesses Joseph and Mary and then we read he specifically looks at Mary and he says, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. For a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, Mary, your soul, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Mary, for so many reasons, is a unique disciple And one of the ways she is most unique is that she is the only one to be at Jesus' cradle, and at his cross. She is his only follower to be at his birth and at his death. And so Mary, the favored one, does not receive a life that is easy and free of suffering. Mary, the favored one, isn't spared from pain. Instead, it's it's that even amidst the soul-piercing pain of her own son that she will see rejected, And crucified, she too will receive life in his death, salvation in his judgment, and glory in his pain. Even the best of a mother's love will be completely eclipsed by the better love of her son. Mary in her pain puts her trust in the work of her son for her. She needed his perfect righteousness for her. He was rejected and scorned for her. He was crucified and buried for her. He went through hell for her and he rose again and was vindicated for her. Mary in her pain will trust. Let us join her in trusting her son. Our souls will experience, I think, a, a much different and in many ways a lesser piercing than Mary's, but it's a piercing nonetheless because all of us will be be put to death. God mercifully will put to death our self-righteousness that we think we can be good enough, that we think we have the ability to clean ourselves up. Uh, he, he, will, he will put to death our own fallen desires that lead us away from him as we look to the one who was perfectly righteous for us, rejected and scorned for us, crucified and buried for us, and rose again for us, triumphing for us. So this is a story that doesn't get old because it can't get old. It's the truest reality in the world. There is hope because God has intervened. There is joy because of this hope. And there is salvation in the one who was born. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. We thank you for this work that fundamentally judges all of our abilities to fix ourselves, all of the human enterprise and ingenuity uh, to make utopia for our own lives, even individually, societally, globally. Lord, we are a broken people. And this is the day that we celebrate that a light has dawned even in the darkness, that a path has been provided, that salvation has dawned. Lord, would you help us to see that? Would you give us the faith to believe that? Would you give us the trust, Lord, to know that you are the one who has done all that we cannot do for ourselves? Lord, would you create faith in all of our hearts? I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.